This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Leslie Jameson, author of the novel The Gin Closet and an essay collection called The Empathy Exams, which won the Grey Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize. The Empathy Exams contains 11 essays with titles such as Pain Tours, Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain, Morphology of the Hit, and The Devil's Bait. Her work probes the experience and idea of human pain and the depths of empathy. We began with a discussion about how, after writing a novel, she started writing personal essays. I had written essays, like, usually kind of as a as experiments. I really started writing them in more earnest when I was working on my second novel, I should say, an attempt at a second novel. Um, I was living in Iowa and working at a bakery. And on my days off in the bakery, I was uh, trying to write this novel about the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua. So it was quite different from my first novel. It was historical and um, overtly political and just a, a really hard book to write. I really cared about it, but I was really struggling with it. And writing had stopped being something I was enjoying and had started feeling like this this massive mountain that I was climbing. And um, I started writing essays honestly, to give myself some relief from that. Like, I had these side projects that were almost like a mistress and did start to feel like an affair because I would I would get really invested in them and really have fun writing them. Things like um, the essay about the ultramarathon in Tennessee was some that I wrote at that stage where it just felt like such a relief and a pleasure to go out into the world and find something that was fascinating to me and uh, transcribe it or reckon with it. And, um, and that was just, it, it, there was some buoyancy and energy there that I was not finding in my fiction. So they were kind of escape hatches. And then at a certain point, I just let myself admit that really the writing that I wanted to, to focus on was the, was the writing that had this energy, um, at least for now, you know, and I, and I, it's something I do tell students, not that they should all give up fiction and start writing essays, but um, that it's just so important to kind of listen to, like, what has the energy for you right now and, and just as much as you can to try to follow that. The marathon is this crazy, really hard marathon that not many people finish in Tennessee. It's basically, like, through the woods and the roots and... It sounds like this grueling sort of thing that you might see on TV and Survivor and most people don't make it. So what was your initial impulse? I mean, what were you trying to get at when you came to the race? And did you find something different by the time you left? One of the things to say also about this marathon is it's it's like 125 miles long, generally to say, because I thought a marathon was long, and then I found out that these things existed that were even longer, and it sort of blew my mind. Um, really, what motivated me in the beginning was just the basic question of why. Why do people do this? Why are people drawn to seeking out this incredibly painful, uncomfortable experience? Um, and I think that that kind of remained my question throughout, that the, the terms of the question shifted 
a bit because I started to realize that a lot of people who ran this race weren't necessarily articulating to themselves or very conscious of having a set of reasons for doing it. Um, And so I sort of, by the time I was done reporting and writing it, I ended up thinking more in terms of like, what does it mean to do something without a clear set of reasons rather than feeling like, oh, I've identified what all of those reasons were. Um, But it's always, I mean, it's like like a wonderful thing about writing and, and especially reported writing is just the way that you can't go into it with a a thesis statement that you're not willing to have broken. I'm just wondering, as you were putting this together, I know you took all these essays you wrote and you entered them in a prize that you won, the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize, and they're called the Empathy Exams. Was that a title that you came up with before? Is that, or is that like a theme that you noticed after you started writing was repeating? I had written a number of the essays before I even started thinking about putting them in a collection at all, much less started thinking that the thematic through line of that collection would be empathy. Um, So I would say it was a process of sort of realizing that these pieces I'd been writing, these questions I'd been asking, these worlds that I'd been exploring did all have these kind of subterranean tunnels connecting them, like, you know, how do we understand other people's lives and how do we make our pain more legible or try to decode other people's pain. Um, and I liked, I liked that those questions felt common, but that also that the pieces were pointed in very different directions and were looking at really different worlds because I, I wanted you know, once I started thinking about putting them in a collection and started to get really jazzed about that idea, I liked the idea that there would be some continuity in it, but that I wouldn't feel like just reading the same thing over and over again. The title, Empathy Exams, really came from uh, the experience that is documented in the in the first essay where I'm writing about being a medical actor and um, getting paid to fake certain kinds of illnesses so med students could to diagnose me, and um, I was evaluating the med students on you know, whether they asked the right questions and came up with the right diagnosis, but also on their display of empathy, and and so that's really where the idea came up of, of the empathy exams, or what would it mean to create a, a test for somebody's empathy, um, but then it felt like it fit right, because you could think about each of these essays as a kind of empathy exam that kind of I was taking um, or, or asking others to take. Was the concept of empathy something that you thought about in your life prior to being this medical actor and testing these med students for empathy? Or is that something that was born out of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of think we're all always thinking about empathy. I mean, I, I mean, some people are sociopaths and maybe they're not. But, like, it's one of those things that's so, it's so just, like, knitted into the fabric of what it means to relate to other human beings that I, I feel like it's never, it's never not part of our experience. It's just do we, do we label it explicitly as, oh, right now I'm thinking about empathy or asking questions about empathy. So, I mean, I've always been really interested in, the texture of human interactions. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Leslie Jameson, author of the essay collection, The Empathy Exams.
I want to talk about your essay about Morgellons. Your essay is called Devil's Bait. Morgellons is it's a skin disease where people feel like there's things coming out of their skin. They have sores and itching and fatigue, and they might feel that there's fibers coming out from under their skin. With this, it's a perfect storm because a lot of medical professionals doubt that this exists. Some people think it's a psychological disorder, and these people who have it might have lesions and sores and scars all over their body. So it's this mixture of something going on definitely in their mind, even if it's just their reaction to their physical illnesses. It involves their body, and it also involves sort of an us versus them kind of mentality. I mean, you tell people you have cancer and people get it and they feel bad for you right away. But if you tell them you have this disease that no one's ever heard of that most people doubt, it's like the stairs toward empathy and toward understanding of outsiders is so much steeper to climb. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And it's also part of what compelled me once I learned about Morgellons disease is the sense of, you know, it seemed that people were really struggling with something, whatever that something was, whatever combination, like you said, of kind of physical symptoms and then psychological reactions to those symptoms or whether the psychology was itself more of a cause, but that there was something really hard and how could another person kind of respect that difficulty and the kind of fact of that suffering, even if the causes of the suffering were difficult to pin down. How did you first hear about this? I, you know, it's funny. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I first read about it. My friend had sent me a piece about it. I think just because she thought it was interesting and thought I would too, but I was sitting in the Prairie Lights, the indie bookstore in Iowa City. Um, And I've told them that since, but like the book feels connected to that place um, in my mind, partially because I first read about Morgellons there. Then I went down the internet rabbit hole a little bit. Um, I mean, it's very much a kind of modern story, too. And, you know, people have pointed this out that you know, somebody had some phrase that they, like, Morgellons was contagious via internet or something like that. This idea that the Morgellons, the community of people who self-identify as having the disease is is largely a product of the internet. It doesn't necessarily mean the disease itself is a product of the internet, but just that this, them being able to kind of gather into a cohesive body is, is more possible because of internet communication possibilities. But um, that's certainly how I learned about it, and then I kind of went down the rabbit hole. Once I realized that there was this annual conference in Austin where people who identify as Morgellon sufferers kind of gather together, I realized that I really wanted to physically go to that gathering and meet some of these people and and also just see what they were getting out of coming together like that. And it wasn't like that far-fetched in your own mind. I mean, sometimes we're just, you know, one thought away from being in solidarity with these people. I mean, you had an experience where you felt something weird in your ankle and or your foot and it was a worm it was really in there (laughs) no I know and I you know it's funny because sometimes I well describe myself as like a hypochondriac where like one out of ten times it's actually 
true, which is like the worst kind of hypochondriac to be because you're like proven right just enough that you can't ever let anything go. Um, but I think I did have this experience where I had, you know, parasite. And so I sort of understood that. I understood what it felt like to go to a doctor, have that doctor think that what you were saying was pretty absurd, um, but still really feel like something was going on inside of you and you wanted that to be recognized. Um, but I also just really, I don't want to say I understood because I do feel really, I want to be really careful about that word or not implying that I kind of know what it's like to ever be another person or to go through what they go through. But I just, I knew how quickly something can, can escalate into obsession because, you know, part of what I write about in that piece is like, it was one kind of experience to feel like maybe I had this parasite, discover I actually did have the parasite and then have the parasite removed. But what actually ended up being a more difficult experience was kind of following the removal of my my little maggot, like be, be becoming obsessed with the idea that there was like another one or, or maybe they hadn't gotten all of it out and and that that was actually much harder to deal with because there was no resolution. Like there was nothing more to take out, but I still had these very obsessive thoughts about it. Um, so I just, I really genuinely felt with that piece that I, I didn't feel very far away from any number of possible explanations for what was going on with these people. Like I just felt like, um, I don't know, the way that mind and body can work together is I just respect that mystery and I respect how much of it I, can't stop him, but also how powerful those connections can be. It seems like so much of life, not just these people who are suffering from Morgellons, but just anyone, is just that we want to be heard. We want to be listened to and ultimately believed. And one of the things you say in your first essay, The Empathy Exams, is empathy is a kind of care, but it's not the (laughs) only kind of care, and it's not always enough. And I'm curious about that. Part of that comes from, honestly, my my family. Like this idea that listening and understanding matters so much, and that's that's always been the part kind of that I am intuitively focused on. Um, and part of it's just because of my skill set. Like I feel like I've always been better at listening to things and fixing them. Um, and so I I find that I often occupy that role for other people, but you know, other people in my family, my, you know, my aunt's a psychologist, my uncle was a psychiatrist, um, my dad's an economist, he's sort of, he's not a doctor, but he kind of, he works on health issues, and in a way he's kind of fixing his goals, sort of fix health, but just on a more macro policy level, um, a lot of his work is really oriented towards solutions, and so when I say something like, you know, empathy is a kind of care, but it's not the only kind of care, and sometimes it's not enough, you know, I'm definitely kind of thinking about everything I've absorbed from people I really respect in my family about kind of, you know, you can help people get better, and that's important too, you know. And uh, I, mean, I did think about that a bit at the Morgellons conference where, you know, especially with, with some people there, not all people there, but some people there where it did feel like there could be mental health problems that were part of what they were going through, that I realized it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily be the best kind of care to just, believe everything or just simply kind of adopt. It's not always the best thing to just adopt somebody's narrative of their own life. Like sometimes you really care for them better by in a skillful clinical way, not like a reporter way, but in a, you know, in a clinical way, kind of trying to push back against their narrative, what's wrong with them and figure out what 
what they might need, you know? And um, so that, that sort of supplements empathy or, or what might lie beyond empathy in terms of being good to other people. Did you ever find in any of the situations that you were writing about or anything in your life where you felt like pain was almost an Olympic sport in the sense that people wanted to maybe outdo others' pain or just so badly communicate that their pain is worse than someone else's? I... I I'm just intuitively thinking that this happens more than people fighting over happiness. You know, my happiness is more than yours. I feel like pain right. is a separate thing. I have the same intuitive feeling. I mean, I think part of it is like happiness is its own reward. Like if you're happy, you're happy. So you don't necessarily need other people to know how happy you are, or see the size of your happiness or whatever. Whereas pain is not its own reward. And so I think that sometimes it can feel like having other people recognize how big your pain is or how hard your pain is, is kind of a compensation for having to actually experience that, that pain and that difficulty. And so that's part of what can lead to the kind of the deep desire for its size and scale to be recognized and then potentially, yeah, the kind of Olympic sportness of it. You know, my impulse is, is usually towards trying to respect that, like, at the point at which pain has become an Olympic sport, like there's probably something very significant and worth recognizing there. And so it matters less like putting everybody on a totem pole of most or even judging people for turning it into a sport at all. And, and, and more just like that's all a sign that there's something there that needs to be dealt with. Like I've kind of, I feel that way sometimes about when people ask you for money on the street. And, you know, I know some people who, kind of try to figure out, well, are, is the story that they're telling, is that a real story? Are they making something up? Like, is what's written on their sign a lie or not? And, like, I always feel like whatever the truth is, like, it is a truth that has brought them to a point where they're asking for money on the street or on the subway or whatever, and that's kind of enough for me. Like, it means that there's something that's really hard, you know, that some part of their reality is really hard thinking through that question or how pain can become, how there can be certain kind of bragging rights associated with pain too is what is a real motivating question for me with the, the last essay, uh, grand, grand unified theory of female pain, uh, title that I meant in a, in a kind of tongue in cheek way and partially to kind of conjure up the ways that, um, sort of, female pain has become this, can take on sort of absurd, larger-than-life qualities sometimes. But um, I think that idea of sort of the ways that we might even court pain or capitalize on pain as an identity, um, and then the way that that behavior can get judged, um, was really something that, it was the last essay that I wrote, and I knew that I wanted it to be last in the collection, and it was kind of an attempt to think through some of the questions and problems that writing all of the other essays had raised for me. And I had this hope that maybe certain readers who had like questions or issues that were raised by the pieces would then feel like, oh, okay, the collection is actually trying to take on some of those questions. Like, why are we so drawn to pain? Like, what does it mean to think about pain this much or to seek it out? Or what do we get out of pain um, that they could sort of feel the book taking them into those questions too. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Leslie Jameson, author of the essay collection, The Empathy Exams. So tell me about some writers who influenced you. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. So somebody that um, I have been thinking about and very inspired by recently is uh, Chris Krause. So I'm going to read a passage from her, the book that is of hers that's probably most well-known, which is called I Love Dick. Um, talk about the New York subways. If you want to get a lot of unsolicited feedback on what you're reading, <laughs> read a novel called I Love Dick um, on the subways of New York. Yeah, <laughs> yes, we'll get a lot of comments. Um, and Chris Krause, is, she's really interested in writing about female identity, but also what it means to write from a first-person perspective as a woman. Anyway, this bit is, um, well, it sort of speaks for itself. But I explained to Warren about the difference between male and female monsters. Female monsters take things as personally as they really are. They study facts. Even if rejection makes them feel like the girl who's not invited to the party, they have to understand the reason why. Monstrosity, the self as a machine, the blob, mindlessly swallowing and engorging, rolling down the supermarket aisle, absorbing pancake mix and jello and everyone in town. Unwise and unstoppable. The horror of the blob is a horror of the fearless. To become the blob requires a certain force of will. Every question, once it's formulated, is a paradigm contains its own internal truth. We have to stop diverting ourselves with false questions. And I told Warren, I aim to be a female monster too. And part of what I'm drawn to in Chris Krause is like, I mean, I like that phrase unwise and unstoppable um, because it feels sometimes like a description of her narrators. She writes, you know, she writes novels, and sometimes the main character is named Chris Krause, and sometimes the main character has a different name, but it seems like they're often drawn from similar a similar life. Um, but she writes about desire, and she writes about feeling, and she's kind of not afraid to write about emotion as she doesn't see it as, like, a limited topic. Like, for her, it's like, what if we wrote about emotion in like the smartest, most rigorous way possible? And I love that her writing kind of makes room for um, feeling and intelligence, like really intense intelligence at once, because of course there's no reason that there should be any separation between those two things, but it often seems like there is. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you found tricky or something that changed a lot for the first draft or something you feel you succeeded at? I'm going to read from the end of first essay in my collection, Empathy Exams. And um, basically, I mean, it was, a, it was a part that I was describing before where I used to work as a medical actor. And a part of the essay is also about my own experiences as a medical patient. And in early drafts of the essay, I had a really hard time writing about my experiences and I got some feedback on an early draft from one of my mentors who said, like, he's like, it's so, it feels so cold when you're writing about what you experience. It's like almost like you're writing about yourself as if you were one of these just like made up patients that you were acting out. Um, 
And his that comment from him kind of inspired this thought in me where I was like, oh, what if I actually, as an experiment, turned my own experiences into this kind of, uh, into almost like a clinical case study. And then that actually really ended up breaking something open for me and it made it much easier to write. So um, this is a part from one, one of those scripts that I ended up writing about my own life. Leslie Jameson, OBGYN, Standardized Patient Training Materials. Opening line, you don't need one. Everyone comes here for the same reason. Physical presentation and tone. Wear loose pants. You have been told to wear loose pants. Keep your voice steady and articulate. You are about to spread your legs for a doctor who won't ever know your name. You know the drill, sort of. Act like you do. Encounter dynamics. Answer every question like you're clarifying a coffee order. Be courteous and nod vigorously. Make sure your heart stays on the other side of the white wall behind you. If the nurse asks you whether you are sure about getting the procedure, say yes without missing a beat. Say yes without a trace of doubt. Don't mention the way you felt when you first saw the pink cross on the stick, that sudden expansive joy at the possibility of a child at your own capacity to have one. No, don't mention the single moment of joy because it might make it seem as if you aren't completely sure about what you're about to do. Don't mention the single moment of joy because it might hurt. It will feel more than anything else does like the measure of what you're giving up. It maps the edges of your voluntary loss. Do you want to say anything else about this? It was a kind of powerful experience of the revision process to me because I, you know, I really deeply believe that it's not like we already know our own stories and we just have to tell them. I, I believe in the writing process as one in which we're kind of discovering our own lives and more layers to what we've experienced. And that felt very true to me with this piece, like that, you know, I knew I wanted to write about an abortion that I'd had, but I didn't totally know what I wanted to say about it. And it was really through the process of drafting and redrafting and editing that I got deeper into some of those layers of feeling. And yeah, so that was how it got to where it got. So where do you write? I write, I work at a um, shared writer's space in Manhattan near Union Square. So I have um, like a little cubicle that I work at there. Um, but I like, I like having something like an office to go to. Um, it makes it, it, it makes it easier for me to be productive there. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I um <laughs> sometimes that has historically sometimes been hard. Um, I have a stepdaughter now who's six, so it makes it a little bit easier because um uh, she has a lot going on. But um I would say I take walks, I go out to eat. Sometimes when I really need to get away I will um I'm lucky enough I can take a trip. But who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband is always my first reader. And how have you dealt with rejection? You know, for me, always the best way to deal with rejection is just to kind of throw myself into the parts of my life that don't have anything to do with writing. So um, my family, you know, just like reading bedtime stories, making dinner, cleaning the house, making our home nice, um, or like going out with a friend. Um, But just kind of like, it's less that rejection is like a motivating writing thing for me where I'm like, oh, I'm going to like write the best stuff that they've 
ever read, you know, and more just that I kind of, it's an occasion for me to remember, like, how much bigger my life is than, than, than just my vocation. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is um, wonder, wonder, um, in a lot of ways and for a lot of reasons. But I just, I think there's something, a lot of my writing impulse actually comes from that space of kind of feeling some sense of wonder at the world and how much it holds and how deep it goes. And um, I love writing from that space. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Leslie Jameson, author of the essay collection, The Empathy Exams. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.